Chapter 7, The Council of Chalcedon, Foundation of Western Liberty. For several reasons, and especially because of the Council of Chalcedon, the year AD 451 is one of the most important dates of all history. Important as the Battle of Aviar was in stemming the westward march of dualistic thought and imperialism, Chalcedon even more centrally established the Christian foundation of Western culture and made possible the development of liberty. Chalcedon handed statism its major defeat in man's history. The problem centered on the definition of the two natures of Christ and their union. Behind the problem stood the resurgence of Hellenic philosophy in Christian guise and the claims of the state to be the divine order on earth, to be the incarnation of divinity in history. The Hellenic faith held to a radically different concept of being than did biblical faith. The Christian distinction between the uncreated being of God and the created being of man and the universe placed an infinite gulf between the two, a gulf unbridgeable by nature and bridged only by grace, by grace unto salvation, and by grace permitting a union or community of life, not of substance. For the Greeks, as for non-Christian religions generally, all being is one undivided being. The differences in being are of degree, not of kind. In this great chain of being, it is a question of place on the scale or ladder of being, whereas for a Christian faith, the difference is one of divine and uncreated being as against created and mortal being. In terms of this Greek perspective, salvation is not an act of grace, but rather of self-deification. Moreover, the central institution in history becomes the state. Because the state as the highest point of power in history manifests the nascent or incarnate divinity of being, either in the body, politic, the rulers, or in their offices. In various forms, this faith was the structure of all pagan statism. Thus, the issue very literally was one between Christ and Caesar. At the beginning of the Christian era, the world was confronted with two epiphanies, in Bethlehem and in Rome, as Ethelbert Stauffer in Christ and the Caesars points out, Augustus saw himself as the world's savior who was to come. When in the year 17 BC a strange star shone in the heavens, he saw that the cosmic hour had come and inaugurated a 12-day Advent celebration, which was a plain proclamation of Virgil's message of joy. The turning point of the ages has come. The political order embodied and manifested the divinity inherent in being, and salvation was therefore in and through this high point of power, Caesar. Salvation is to be found in none other save Augustus, and there is no other name given to men in which they can be saved. Conflict between Christ and Caesar was thus inescapable. Rome was quite willing to recognize the church and give it an approved status as a legitimate religion, provided that the church recognized the superior jurisdiction of the state and the political order as the true and primary manifestation of the divine. As Francis Legg noted, the officials of the Roman Empire in time of persecution sought to force the Christians to sacrifice, not to any of the heathen gods, but to the genius of the emperor and the fortune of the city of Rome. And at all times, the Christians' refusal was looked upon not as a religious, but as a political offense. When the empire became Christian, in a variety of forms, the Roman status theology reasserted itself. Indeed, Christ was in some form divine, but more than the church, the empire was held to be the voice of God. 
the recognition of the church by the empire was soon followed by the persecution of orthodoxy, as witness Athanasius, for espousing the divinity and supremacy of Christ. The problem was God or man, Christ or the state, who is man's savior, and how is divinity incarnated? The Council of Chalcedon met in 451 to deal with the issue as it came to focus at the central point in Christology. If the two natures of Christ were confused, it meant that the door was opened to the divinizing of human nature. Man and the state were then potentially divine. If the human nature of Christ were reduced or denied, his role as man's incarnate Savior was reduced or denied, and man's Savior again became the state. If Christ's deity were reduced, then his saving power was nullified. If his humanity and deity were not in true union, the incarnation was then not real, and the distance between God and man remained as great as ever. This was the problem. The person in this crisis was St. Leo, or Leo the Great, whose celebrated letter, the Tome, defending the Orthodox faith, carried the day. St. Leo, as the one pope whose theological abilities have been creative and have led the church, was not lacking in the administrative abilities the office normally demands. Moreover, as Trevor Jalland has noted, Leo was no heresy hunter. His concern was pastoral, the defense of Christ's flock against evil, and the evil in this case was theological. Significantly, the tome began with a severe rebuke to the highly revered Eutyches, elder Archimandrite of a monastery and popular figure, for presuming to be a leader in an area where he was a novice. What more iniquitous than to hold blasphemous opinions, and not to give way to those who are wiser and more learned? St. Leo insisted on the integrity of the Incarnation, very man of very man, and very God of very God, two natures in union without confusion. Moreover, what Christ assumed in his Incarnation was humanity, nature, not the sinful nature of fallen man, but undeformed nature. What was assumed from the Lord's mother was nature, not fault, nor does the wondrousness of the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ as born of a virgin's womb imply that his nature is unlike ours, for the same self who is very God is also very man. The response of the council to the letter is well known. The cry was raised with loud applause. That is the faith of the fathers. That is the faith of the apostles. So we all believe. So the Orthodox believe. Anathema to him who believes otherwise. Through Leo, Peter has thus spoken. Even so did Cyril teach. That is the true faith. The definition or formula of Chalcedon summarized the Orthodox doctrine of Christ. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father, as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us regards his manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood, begotten for us men, and for our salvation, of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same, Christ, Son, 
Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from the earliest time spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. This definition of the fourth general or ecumenical council has remained as the touchstone of orthodoxy. Its influence on theology has been decisive. It is, for example, impossible to understand John Calvin apart from his fidelity to Chalcedon. But the influence of Chalcedon in philosophy and politics has been no less great. Western culture has been largely a product of Chalcedon, and the continuing crisis in both church and state reflect their departures from or rebellions against Chalcedon. Chalcedon, first of all, separated Christian faith sharply from the Greek and pagan concepts of nature and being. It made clear that Christianity and all other religions and philosophies could not be brought together. The natural does not ascend to the divine or to the supernatural. The bridge is gulfed only by revelation and by the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Salvation, therefore, is not of man nor by means of man's politics or by any other effort of man. Second, by denying the confusion of the human and the divine, Chalcedon established a standard against that pagan stream of mysticism which sought precisely the union of the divine and human substances into one being. Such mysticism implicitly made irrelevant the work of Christ, and indeed his very person, in that every man became potentially his own Christ through mystical absorption into the Godhead. The church was also, of course, made irrelevant by this mysticism. More than this, Chalcedon prevented human institutions from professing to be incarnations of the deity and able to unite the two worlds in their existence. The state was reduced to a human order, under God, and it was denied its age-old claim to divinity for the body politic, the ruler, or the offices. Chalcedon thus placed a double roadblock against man's mystical pretensions. By asserting the unique incarnation, without confusion, or change of the two natures, first, personal mysticism was barred, and second, collective mysticism was barred also. Neither the person nor the state could, by its works, experience, or upward growth, or evolution, unite and become absorbed into the Godhead. The uniqueness of the incarnation was a preventative, and the insistence that there was neither change of the two natures or confusion of them in that unique incarnation meant that no church or state could validly claim that, as Christ's humanity, they had entered into his deity also. Had Chalcedon's definition not been made the test of orthodoxy, then humanism could have validly utilized the incarnation with theological sanction to introduce Christ's people, whether as church, state, school, or individuals, into this change of nature from humanity into divinity. To be a Christian in the fullest sense would have meant deification. Participation in the sacrament of communion would have meant participation in more than the new humanity of Jesus Christ, together with the blessing of access in him to God the Father. Instead, the sacrament would become participation in Christ's deity. Man would eat God to become God. Humanism and paganism would then triumph over biblical Christianity. As long as the old pagan view of being prevailed, the state could be the divine human order. 
divinity then became so greatly imminent or incarnate in the state that there was no appeal beyond the state. The state was, at least for its day, the final order. In this scheme of things, man was simply a political animal, a social animal. He was definable in terms of the group, the body politic. Man had no true transcendence nor any ground of appeal against the state. In this condition, liberty was non-existent. Permission from the state to exercise certain areas of activities could exist, but not a liberty apart from and beyond the state grounded in man's creation by God. The state, of course, refused to accept Chalcedon's body blow with equanimity. The claims to divinity took more subtle and ostensibly Christian forms. One of the most critical of these struggles has been described by Gerhard B. Ladner. According to Ladner, the premise of iconoclasm was the claim of the Eastern Empire to be the true incarnation of the divine, the visible and manifest kingdom of God on earth. Not only because the images had such an important place in the Byzantine church, theologically and liturgically, that an attack against them was ipso facto an attack against the church, but also, and still more because, as we shall see, the emperors showed unmistakably that even in maintaining the belief in the supreme, supernatural government of Christ, they did not wish to permit on this earth any other but their own image, or more exactly, the imagery of their own imperial natural world. Leo III wrote to Pope Gregory II, I am king and priest. The Eastern Empire was generally congenial to the heresies which attacked the perfect unity or the entirety of the divine and the human nature in Christ. Arianism, Nestorianism, Monophytism, Monothelitism, for the dissolution of this unity or the diminution of the entirety of each nature in narrowing the extension of Christ's government in the human world widened the extension of the emperor's rulership. By undercutting the incarnation and by confusing the two natures, these heresies and their imperial proponents again made possible the resurgence of the view that the state is the highest visible form of life on earth. The Western Empire also faced a similar struggle. Indeed, vicarious die was a title claimed by many Western emperors. Otto III saw himself as the successor of St. Paul and signed his letters with St. Paul's formula, calling himself Servus Jesu Christi. And as Eugene Rosenstock Husey pointed out, Otto believed that to him is entrusted the dove of inspiration, the Holy Ghost. Much later, Emperor Maximilian, 1493-1518, planned in 1512 to become Pope himself. But this attempt is not limited to the time of the empires, but is endemic to Western history, with empires and states warring against the liberty of Chalcedon, and the state seeking again to become the saving order. In Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, the Staretz declared, Not the church becoming state, but the state becoming church. Mark that well. In the Old Testament, priest and king were two separate offices in Israel. The attempt by King Uzziah to exercise priestly office brought upon him divine judgment in the form of leprosy, 2 Chronicles 26. The two offices were not to have an imminent union, but only a transcendental one. Because church and state are ordained by God as the ministries of grace and of justice, and because grace and justice both rest in the righteousness, holiness, and mercy of God, their essential frame of reference is supernatural. 
they are united only in Christ, who declared to Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world, John 19.36, i.e. not derived from this world, but is rather an eternal and divine kingdom, derived from the triune God. Instead of an eternal kingdom, the pagan state seeks a purely historical kingdom, i.e. one derived entirely from history and manifesting only the divinity inherent in history. To return to the definition of Chalcedon, Cornelius Van Til, in The Defense of the Faith, has described the purpose of the formula, to make known the meaning of the Incarnation, and to preserve the integrity of the Union. Christ came to bring man back to God. To do this, he was and had to be truly God. It was the second person of the ontological trinity who was in respect of his essence fully equal with the Father, who therefore existed from all eternity with the Father, who in the Incarnation assumed human nature. In the Incarnation, Jesus Christ was truly man and truly God. The Creed of Chalcedon has expressed all this by saying that in Christ the divine and the human natures are so related as to be two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The former two adjectives safeguard against the idea that the divine and the human nature are in any sense intermingled. The latter two adjectives assert the full reality of the union. This point is very important. Not only was the reality of the two natures without confusion, without change, declared, but the reality of their union, without division, without separation, similarly asserted. The attempt of status theology to divinize nature was declared to be anathema, but so was the attempt of status theology to diminish the reality of the Incarnation. To the degree that the reality of the Incarnation was diminished, to that degree the state again asserted its claim to total lordship over man and society as the savior and redeemer thereof. Monophysite thinking, by diminishing the reality of Christ's humanity, or destroying it, thereby left Christ's humanity an unreal thing, and the Incarnation a vague and clouded fact. Jesus Christ, as very man of very man, was the new and last Adam, 1 Corinthians 16.45, and his church is the new and redeemed humanity. Membership in Christ, as set forth in the communion elements, his body and blood, is membership in the new, redeemed humanity, the destined heirs of creation in Christ. The Christians were thus a new race, sometimes called the third race, i.e. supplanting the old divisions of Jew and Gentile, Greek and Barbarian, Roman and non-Roman. This note resounds through the liturgies of St. John Chrysostom and Basil the Great. Adam is recalled, the curse is made void, Eve is set free, death is slain, and we are made alive. Wherefore, in hymns we cry aloud, Blessed art thou, O Christ our God. The liturgies speak of the race of Christians. In a proeortion of the nativity of Christ, we read, The virgin today cometh into a cave to bring forth ineffably the word that is before the ages. Dance thou universe on hearing the tidings. Glorify with the angels and the shepherds with him that willed to be beheld a little child, the God before the ages. Dance thou universe. People who summoned the universe to dance and joy at the Incarnation, who knew themselves to be God's new humanity, bound in Christ, and his sacrament to a community of life with his divinity, were not ready to bow the knee to Caesar as Christ. Instead, they wanted a Christian state, church and state alike under Christ the King. Monophytism ostensibly exalted Christ by diminishing his humanity, but it simply endangered or destroyed the reality of the Incarnation. It reduced the realm of the church to the spiritual, which was left poorly related to the world, and again turned over the material world to Caesar. 
Nestorianism made Christ into a divinized man rather than incarnate God, and it thereby simply strengthened status theology. Any subordinationist Christology which gave to God the Son a reduced status in the Trinity similarly reduced the Church as Christ's body. Status theology rested on the primacy of nature as the voice and manifestation of God, and nature's high point of power in history is the state. Status theology was ready to accommodate grace by giving it a subordinate role, by using grace to buttress nature. It created a nature-grace dialectic, which was a revival of the Greek form-matter dialectic, and thus implicitly anti-Christian. In such theology, Christ simply becomes a support to the state, rather than lord over church and state. George Hunston Williams points out that Christ as rex et sacerdos is divinely king and only humanly a priest. The result was a political theology subordinating church to state. But a true Christology is not dialectical, but Trinitarian. It rests not on the dialectics of nature versus grace, but on the moral crisis, sin versus grace. Nature fallen is in need of redemption. Christ enters the world to establish a new humanity in whom he creates by his regenerating and sanctifying power a new nature, one in communion with him. God has no war against nature, and his struggle is not against nature, but against sin. In the redeemed humanity, Christ rules over all things, state and church included. The modern dialectic is nature versus freedom. A further development of the older dialectical form, form versus matter, in this new dialectic, accommodation gives way to hostility towards Christ. Status theology no longer needs him. As the manifestation and incarnate power of man and nature, the state offers itself as man's true freedom, man's hope of grace, as it were, through whom paradise will be restored. The state thus claims to be also man's true church and man's true Christ. The roots of this claim are in pagan antiquity, but they run deeply through the medieval period also. Ernst H. Kentorowitz describes the early mysticism of Parliament. Before the close of Parliament in 1410, the Speaker of the Commons saw fit to compare the body politic of the realm with the Trinity, the King, the Lord spiritual and temporal, and the Commons jointly formed a Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity. On the same occasion, the Speaker compared the procedures of Parliament with the celebration of a Mass. The reading of the Epistle and the expounding of the Bible at the opening of Parliament resembled the initial prayers and ceremonies preceding the holy action. The King's promise to protect the Church and observe the laws compared with the sacrifice of the Mass. Finally, the adjournment of Parliament had its analogy in the It Missi Est, the dismissal and the Deo Gratias, which concluded the holy action. Although these comparisons do not mean very much all by themselves, they nevertheless reflect the intellectual climate and show to what extent political thought in the high Gothic age gravitated towards mysticizing the body politic of the realm. Later, as Krantorowitz points out, and as Cardinal Pohl did at the time, Henry VIII treated the church as a simple corpus politicum, and therefore as part and parcel of the realm of England. The modern conservative references to God and country preserve this older form of status theology. 
In its modern form, the statist theology goes further. It not only ignores Christ and the Church, it begins to deny their right to exist. A critical battleground is the issue of taxation. The modern state assumes the position of having a right to tax the Church as a corpus politicum, and then magnanimously forgoes this right on the ground that the Church is a charitable or non-profit institution. The hidden premise is that the church is under the state and exists by permission. But the whole claim of Chalcedon theology has been that the church, directly under Christ the King, is an independent domain, even as the state is, and that the church cannot be taxed because it has extraterritorial rights, as it were. It is a separate domain with its own realm of law, and the state has no jurisdiction in that realm. As neither church nor state are themselves Christ, neither can usurp sovereignty over Christ's realm. They can only exercise authority in the jurisdiction given them by Christ the King. The long struggle of the church to gain independence of jurisdiction and then to maintain it, although alien to our present purpose, needs to be restudied and stressed among Christians as they move rapidly into another phase of the struggle, the attempt of the new paganism to deny the church any independent jurisdiction. There are supposedly Christian voices calling for the taxation of the churches. Significantly, these same persons deny Chalcedon theology. For them, Jesus Christ is not very God of very God, and very man of very man, unchangeably, inseparably, unconfusedly, united in the one only begotten Son, our Savior. The significance and determinative realm for them is not the supernatural God, but the natural man, not eternity, but time. Thomas J. J. Altizer has stated openly the implicit principle of modernism. Historicity means a total immersion in historical time, an immersion that is totally isolated from any meaning or reality that might lie beyond us. This means for man an absolute autonomy which finally encloses him within the concrete moment itself. For Chalcedon, Jesus Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, reigned in heaven as the creator and determiner of all things, even when he walked the earth. As St. John declared, the Word was God, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John 1, 1, 3. In such a Christology, time is governed by eternity, man by God. Status theology, however, demands that time govern eternity, and man govern whatever God exists, or better, be his own God. Any theology which weakens the definition of Chalcedon weakens the primacy of the triune God over history, and any theology which denies Chalcedon must of necessity affirm history as the primary area of determination. Time, then, alone is the source of the historical and the supernatural is denied. God the Son not only does not determine time in history, he is denied historicity because he demands reference to the ontological trinity, to eternity, to be understood. The only Christ permitted is a totally human Christ, one totally immersed in time and exclusively and totally a product of history. This is the historical Jesus of higher criticism. Demythologizing criticism has a similar goal, to reduce Jesus to history, to a total meaning from within history. But the quest for the historical and demythologized Jesus is an impossibility. The Jesus of Scripture is only understandable in his every word and act in terms of the eternal decree and purpose of the triune God. The history of modern criticism is post-Kantian history, a philosophical abstraction, not the real history of man, the creature, in a God-created world. 
The real Jesus of history is set forth in scripture and defined by Chalcedon. Significantly, modernism's characteristic message is the social gospel and social action. Modernism is the status theology of contemporary man. Its gospel, its good news, is that the state has an answer to all man's problems. Whether it be a burden of body or soul, poverty, cultural deprivation, mental health, disease, ignorance, family problems, and all things else, the state has a program and a plan of salvation. The United Nations Charter, in its preamble, also reflects this hope. We, the people of the United Nations, determined to save. The UN is determined to save, and its goal is a world without distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion. In its social order, Charter 9, 55, 1, 1, 3, etc. The goal of politics today is messianic. Its purpose is paradise regained, a perfect world order by means of law and technology. Man's problem is not seen as sin, but as a backward environment which science can correct. Statist theology sees all problems answered by statist action. The goal of all men of good will must therefore be social legislation. More power must be given to the state in order to realize the city of man. The fathers at Chalcedon aimed their definition against persons undertaking to make void the preaching of the truth, and Chalcedon's purpose was to exclude every device against the truth. For them, everything was at stake in this question of the Incarnation. If the reality of the union without confusion were denied, then not only the reality of salvation was gone, but also the reality of Christ's kingship and law. The ecumenical councils issued canons. Bright, in his Notes on the Canons, has pointed out that the original sense, a straight rod or line, determines all its religious applications, which begin with St. Paul's use of it for a prescribed sphere of apostolic work, 2 Corinthians 10, 13, 15, or a regulative principle of Christian life, Galatians 6, 16. Christ the King has a canon, a regulative principle, a law for church and state, and the denial of the reality of the Incarnation was also the denial of this regulative principle and law. If Chalcedon's definition were not true, then there was no canon. God, if he existed, was remote from man and unable to bridge the gap between himself and man. The law given to Adam, Noah, and Moses presupposed the reality of the Incarnation. The triune God who created is also the incarnate God who redeems and restores the world to his law and dominion. The meaning thus is clear. No Christ, no law. The canons issued by Chalcedon rested on the definition of Chalcedon in that they presuppose the reality of the incarnation as defined and therefore the binding power of the law of Christ. A God who is not the creator is an alien to the universe. It is its own evolving law. A God who is truly the Savior of the world is of necessity its creator. He has made it, and its only possible health is in its restoration to communion with him. His law, therefore, is the only true regulative principle for the world. There was, then, a legal issue at stake. In status theology, for the rationalist, law is logic. For the empiricist, law is experience. In either case, it is basically a product of nature, man, and history. It is totally imminent and has no transcendental frame of reference. Status theology has moved steadily into legal positivism, into an affirmation that the only true law is positive law, the law of the state. There is, then, no Supreme Court of Appeal beyond the state. 
the universe becomes a closed universe without a higher law or an absolute truth. Man is locked into the world and the relative truth of the state. The fathers at Chalcedon, in noting the work of the Second Ecumenical Council, the First Council of Constantinople in 381, referred to the formulation of the doctrine of the Holy Ghost as a bulwark against those who were seeking to destroy his sovereignty. A similar defense was now at stake. For the unconfused, immutable, indivisible, inseparable union meant the sovereignty of Christ. Sovereignty, duty, and law are inseparably united. The source of law in any system is not only the locale of sovereignty, but also the God of that system. God only is the true sovereign and the true source of law. Christian feudalism had no concept of human sovereignty, and American feudalism, as a Protestant revival of feudalism, began with an avoidance of the word sovereignty. Its proper application is to God alone. By defining Christ as very God of very God, in true but unconfused union with man and thus very man of very man, Chalcedon thereby declared Christ to be the one true source of a regulative principle a canon, and therefore Christ's word was instruction and law for man, for church, state, and every other order. By preserving the union from confusion, Chalcedon preserved the canon from becoming a potential realization of man. Christ as man, as the last Adam, kept the law perfectly, to manifest his perfect obedience as man to the law of God. Christ as God was and is the eternal source of the canon, being he by whom all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1.3 To have permitted belief in the confusion of the natures would have meant that man could become an aspect of his own God, aspire to be, in his union with Christ, his own lawmaker and co-creator. Humanity would have been introduced into deity, not into a community of life, but in a community of substance. But, said the fathers, anything other than this Christ in perfect union without confusion is another faith, and the holy ecumenical synod defines that no one shall be suffered to bring forward a different faith, nor to write, nor to put together, nor to excogitate, nor to teach it to others. Chalcedon made possible Western liberty. It is possible to speak of true liberty as a product of Christian faith, because antiquity saw the city-state or the imperial state as a religious entity, a visible manifestation of the divine order. As Fustel de Colingas observed, every city was a sanctuary, every city might be called holy. The city represented a holy and divine order, and it had an omnipotence and an absolute empire which it exercised over its members. In a society established on such principles, individual liberty could not exist. The citizen was subordinate in everything, and without any reserve to the city, he belonged to it body and soul. Because the state embraced all of life, including worship, and because it was the manifestation or incarnation of the divine order, man had to submit to the state as his visible God. There was nothing independent in man. His body belonged to the state and was devoted to its defense. Plato was not alone in holding, in his laws, that children belong less to their parents than to the city. This was usually the case. The unity of life was totally imminent, fully realized in the body politic. The state was the one, the unity of being. Because man's life was comprehended by the state, particularity was less an aspect of man than of the state, or of states. The one and the many were to be known only in terms of political units. 
In Chalcedonian faith, the ultimate one and the many cannot be located in creation, but only in the triune God, one God, three persons, in whom the one and the many have equal ultimacy. Moreover, because Chalcedonian theology, by its doctrine of Christ, preserved the integrity of the Trinity, it upheld the biblical answer to the problem of the one and the many. When unity and particularity or individuality are in their ultimate source transcendental and firmly grounded in the triune God, man's realization of unity and individuality is freed from the oppressive presence of the state as the realized order. In the Christian view, man's life is not comprehended by the state. It is comprehended only by the triune God. Man's unity is only truly realizable in God and his kingdom. Man's individuality is again only realizable in and through God. This means that man's eternal destiny is a predestined one and bound to the grace of the ultimate one and many, the Trinity. But it also means that man's present life is freed from the predestination of the state. Man's self-realization is not in the state, but in God. The meaning of this was not lost on the early church. Bishops and preachers rebuked the emperor and state for daring to presume too much, for claiming authority which belonged to God only. Christianity was no sooner a recognized religion than its orthodox thinkers began to push back the claims of the state. The state was seen as the ministry of justice, Romans 13, 1-8. It could not claim to be the ultimate or comprehending order. Man as God's creature transcended the state by virtue of his citizenship in God's eternal kingdom. The ancient city, according to Colingus, governed the soul as well as the body of man, and, infinitely more powerful than the states of our day, united in itself the double authority that we now see shared between the state and the church. The state was the vehicle of the will of the gods, if not their incarnation. The church now undercut this claim by affirming that God had manifested through Christ the Son and the written word, his canon, of truth. In antiquity, man had been bound to the state, but freed from God. Orthodox Christianity freed man from the state by binding him to God, who is man's true ground of freedom and fulfillment. The source of this Christian liberty is Trinitarianism, with its logical concomitant Chalcedonian Christology. St. Leo insisted on this necessary relationship. Anti-Trinitarianism meant also hostility to the true union. In Sermon 23 on the Feast of the Nativity 3, St. Leo declared, But the Godhead, which is one in the Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, excludes all notion of inequality, for the eternity of the Trinity has nothing temporal, nothing dissimilar in natures. Its will is one, its substance identical, its power equal, and yet there are not three gods, but one God, because it is a true and inseparable unity, where there can be no diversity. Thus, in the whole and perfect nature of true man was true God-born, complete in what was his own, complete in what was ours. Again, in Sermon LXXV on Whitsuntide 1, St. Leo made clear that the error of Sibelius was to be avoided. The three persons are a real trinity. For in the divine trinity nothing is unlike or unequal, and all that can be thought concerning its substance admits of no diversity either in power or glory or eternity. And while in the property of each person the Father is one, the Son is another, and the Holy Ghost is another, yet the Godhead is not distinct and different. For whilst the Son is the only begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son, not in the way 
that every creature is the creature of the Father and the Son, but as living and having power with both, and eternally subsiding with that which is the Father and the Son. The equal ultimacy of the one and the many and their locale in the Trinity was thus strictly safeguarded by St. Leo. It was further safeguarded by his insistence on creationism. In Sermon 22, on the Feast of the Nativity 2, St. Leo declared that God created the universe out of nothing and framed by his almighty methods the substance of the earth and sky into what forms and dimensions he willed. God, having created all things, governs them absolutely. St. Leo held, as Sermon LXVII reveals, on the Passion XVI, to the unchangeable order of God's eternal decrees, with whom the things which are to be decided are already determined, and what will be is already accomplished. God is thus the first cause in all history. Man's causality is a secondary causality. The state thus is placed under God, initiative in history is withdrawn from man and the state and given to God. The incarnation is denied to the state and made unique in Jesus Christ and without confusion of natures. The center of history is beyond history, and the Christians are the new chosen race of God in Jesus Christ. Sermon 33, 3 on the Feast of the Epiphany, 3. On the foundation of Chalcedon, the formulation of biblical Christology, Western liberty has been built. Ignorance and neglect of Chalcedon has been basic to the decline of the church. Strange voices in Christendom assert the necessity for Christian relevance, but the relevance they have in mind is not to Christ and his kingdom, but to the reviving pagan status theology and the attempts by the pagan humanistic state to lead man into a paradise without God. But the reduction of man to the dimensions of the state, to the dimensions of time and history, is the enslavement of man, not his liberation. Christendom needs to echo the decision of the fathers at Chalcedon, who, after declaring the definition, stated, This is the faith of the apostles. By this we all stand. Thus we all believe. The alternative is Christ or Caesar, liberty or slavery, God or man. Is salvation man's upward reach or God's downward reach? Is it man's word or God's grace? Is God or the state man's savior? The answer of Chalcedon is emphatically for God and liberty. Western liberty began when the claim of the state to be man's savior was denied. The state then, according to scripture, was made the ministry of justice. But wherever Christ ceases to be man's savior, there liberty perishes as the state again asserts its messianic claims. Man is in trouble and history is the record of his attempt to find salvation. Man needs a savior, and the question is simply one of choice, Christ or the state. No man can choose the one without denying the other, and all attempts at compromise are a delusion.